1: Welcome back, Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. I am Seth and The phone number is 602-508-0960. David Dahl in the production chair. Good to see you, my man. You know what one of the problems... So the last couple years I've been like... Not like. I have only been eating one meal a day dinner, right? I, I do... I think it's called a 23-1 fast or whatever it is. So 23 hours of not eating. The, the problem or the benefit is, do you know what it does? The ancillary benefit is it improves your sense of smell because you just walked out in the hall and there's a party going on with foodstuffs being served at the office next door. And all I can do is, is (laughs) all I can do is like a hound dog, like Dagny just want to, yes, exactly. Standing up, looking in, wanting the invite. But of course, I wouldn't eat anyway, but um, it makes you hungry when they do that. So no more food at parties during office hours, please. Not anyway cooked foods. Um, Okay. A few things have been left unsaid since uh, the American Federation of Teachers, President Randy Weingarten, testified to Congress last week and testified that she was neither responsible for nor supportive of keeping schools closed throughout the COVID troubles. The testimony came as a great deal of other memory holding came, including an umpteenth big profile interview of Anthony Fauci in the New York Times. New York Times last week, where he too claimed no responsibility for shutdowns and school closings. First, a little evidence, and then second, a point that has not been made fully or recognized fully enough. Anthony Fauci told CNN's Christiane Amanpour in an interview last week. He was doing the rounds. CNN, New York Times. This is exactly what he told her. Quote, there were schools that stayed closed far too long and longer than they should have. And there were those that essentially didn't close at all. My daughter's school closed down for two weeks and they didn't do too badly. Close quote. Does anyone remember Dr. Fauci saying anything like that in 2020, 2021 or 2022? Nobody does because he didn't. What he did say is schools should stay closed in areas of high transmission and that those decision decisions decisions should be made at the local levels. But 90 percent of our children were in areas the CDC reported were areas of high transmission and never once did Anthony Fauci discuss or promote the problems that would attend or were attending school closures. He could have. It would have been news. It would have been memorable But he either green-lighted school closures or said nothing about the dangers of them when it mattered. Pick your month, pick your choice. Why anyone ever thought this man worth listening to, given his opening and early statements on COVID, still remains a mystery to me, as he got the two defining issues of COVID wrong. Not mistaken, wrong. Monumentally wrong, when he first spoke about them. On February 17th, 2020... He told the USA Today the threat of the virus to America was, get this, minuscule. His word, the threat to, the, to America from the virus was minuscule. In that same interview, he said he was more worried about influenza, February 2020. Next month, March 8, 2020, Dr. Fauci was asked about masks and said this, quote, there's no reason to be walking around with a mask when you're in, when you're in the middle of an outbreak. Wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better and it might even block a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often there are unintended consequences. Keep, people keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face, close quote. Now, one can argue about why he said that. And if it had to do with worries regarding supply shortages, but the point is this, he said those two things and then stood for three years against both of those things, 180 degrees from those positions. Everyone should mask all the time. And COVID was hardly minuscule, or at least how we treated it was hardly minuscule and under his guidance. It upended not only the entire country, it upended every part of the country not exactly minuscule. So why anyone thought this guy worth listening to, getting those two monumental things exactly wrong, ab initio, or him changing his mind, if you prefer, is still a relevant question. Consider, if a lawyer gave you advice, you followed it, and it got you in trouble, you'd fire him. You might even sue him. He might even have his license reviewed by a bar agency. If a doctor gave you advice and you followed it and it got you sick or had the opposite effect of what he said it would, you'd fire him. You might even sue him. He might even have his license reviewed by a board of medical examiners. If anyone in any profession gave you advice you followed and it got you in trouble, you'd fire him. You might even sue him. He might even have his license reviewed by his professional board. Now, one more thing from the New York Times interview last week. How important did Fauci and everyone make the issue of masking in April of 2020 through about April of last year? In fact, in 2021, Fauci even said masks shouldn't even be a personal choice, but rather a duty. The president called it a patriotic duty. And the CDC was pushing masking even after and with vaccination. Now, or last week in The New York Times, Fauci said this. And this is from his interview in The New York Times last week. Quote, From a broad public health standpoint, at the population level, masks worked at the margins, maybe 10%, close quote. Maybe 10%, Bill. Will no one rid us of this troublesome priest? He got everything wrong by his own directives, only to now claim innocence about it all. Which takes us back to Randy Weingarten. In Congress last week, she said, quote, we spent every day from February on trying to get schools open. We knew that remote education was not a substitute for opening schools. We knew that young people that young people learn and connect best in persons, best in person. So opening schools safely, even during a pandemic, guided our actions, close quote. Is memory loss a feature of long covid? What of her description in July 2020 of the Trump administration's push to reopen schools for in-person learning that autumn, that fall, as, quote, reckless, callous and cruel, close quote. That summer, she also endorsed teacher safety strikes if unions deemed local reopening protocols to be inadequate, as The Wall Street Journal reminds. Then there were her local affiliates, the local unions under the AFT from Chicago to Miami to Los Angeles, all of which threatened strikes if schools reopened. Her Los Angeles affiliate leader went so far as to say, quote, there is no such thing as learning loss, close quote. That was August of 2021. She went on to say, quote, it's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables, close quote. Now, it is true. Weingarten's union did issue guidelines that would need to be met in order to reopen schools. In 2020, she issued them. You want to hear them? Here they are, courtesy of David Leonard, writing them up in the New York Times, reprinting them. Here we go. Quote, adequate personal protective equipment, new cleaning and sanitation regimens in school buildings, a temporary suspension of formal teacher performance evaluations, a limit on student testing, a cancellation of student loan debt, and a $750 billion federal age pa- aid package to help schools prepare to open safely and facilitate close quote. Got that? How much of that had anything to do with COVID and teacher safety or student safety? Teacher performance evaluations? Something unions have fought since the day they were invented? Limits on school testing? Something unions have fought since the day they were invented? Canceling student loan debt? Something unions have fought for since the day the idea became possible? And a trillion dollar infusion of federal money, something unions have always wanted. None of that had anything to do with covid, but rather covid was used as a pretext for typical and standard teacher union bullying, desiderata and blackmail. Shame on them. As to how wrong it all was, I give you David, Leonardo Leonard of The New York Times again from his article last week. Quote, in Europe, many were open by the middle of the year. Many schools were open by the middle of the year. In the U.S., private schools, including Catholic schools, which often have modest resources, reopened. In conservative parts of the U.S., public schools also reopened. Some people did contract COVID at these schools, but the overall effect on the virus's spread was as close to zero as you can get. U.S. communities with closed schools had similar levels of COVID as communities with open schools, be they in the U.S. or Europe. Close quote. So as to COVID... The schools being shuttered did nothing as pertains to covid, but they did do a lot to wit, quote, about half of American children lost at least a year of full time school, according to Michael Hartney of Boston College. And the children suffered as a result. Quote, they lost ground in reading, math and other subjects. The effects were worst on low income, black and Latino children. Depression increased and the American Academy of Pediatrics declared a national emergency in children's mental health. Shamik Dasgupta, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who became an advocate for opening schools, said, and he called the closures, quote, a moral catastrophe, close quote. He continued, quote, it is clear that extended school closures were a mistake. They harmed children while having no measurable effect on the pandemic. It is also clear that teachers unions were a major factor behind the closures. Close quote. Let us remind people were censored and shamed for speaking up on behalf of opening schools. Jennifer say of Levi Strauss was called a racist and fired. This happened to a lot of people, including us right here, but it's not as if the wisdom didn't exist. I'm no longer interested in people saying, well, this is what we knew at the time. No, it was not in May of 2020, May, May, I co-authored a piece with Bill Bennett for Fox News, still available online, begging schools to reopen, and that tremendous social damage would result if they didn't. Shamed we were. The Hallmans, Hugh and Lewis, and I spoke routinely about this and wrote several op-eds saying much the same and beyond, starting in May of 2020. So too Dennis Prager, so too Heather MacDonald, so to Professor Marty McCarry, so to Jay Bhattacharya, So, too, Scott Atlas. The wisdom was there if it wasn't being censored or shamed. A a small reminder on this. When I was doing YouTube commentaries on COVID back then, YouTube started banning those commentaries. Our general manager put in a series of calls to find out why. And when he finally got someone there, was told the YouTube policy was that only government official statements about COVID would be allowed. So following that directive... I got Dr. Doctor, Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, Eleanor McCants-Katz, as a guest to speak on the importance of opening schools. Why do I call her Dr. Doctor? Because she has a Ph.D. in child psychology and an M.D. in epidemiology. A government spokesman, you would think. She was, after all, Senate confirmed for her position at the Department of Health and Human Services. Guess what? You two banned the interview. As for the children... We, over the course of three years, did lose 1,600 with COVID. Three years, 1,600 children. I say with because, as Johns Hopkins, Dr. Marty McCary put it, not a single one of those deaths were without comorbidities. 1,600 is, of course, awful, as one is, of course, awful. But a little perspective. Perspective. We lose more children in two years from drowning than we lost in all of COVID. We lose more children from drug overdose deaths in any year than we did in all of COVID. In 2021 alone, 25% more children died from drug poisoning deaths in just Arizona than in all three years of COVID. For all that carnage, what has been done or said by Randy Weingarten or Anthony Fauci or really anyone. So the thing that hasn't been said about all this... It's not that your Fauci's and wine gardens want to revise history. They were wrong, awfully wrong, and the facts now show it, as does all the social downwash. The thing that hasn't been said by them or anywhere else, their news stories, their revisionism, it means only one thing, and it needs to be more than a tacit admission. We who said the other side of this, we who took the other side of this, we were right, We who were shamed, we who were fired, we who were ostracized, we who were called science deniers and Neanderthals and insensitive and dumb and idiots. I love that one. Idiot. Again and again, I was called that. We were right and they were wrong. Anthony Fauci and Randy Weingarten and all the other henny pennies are, via their revisions, tacitly admitting we were right. Not just that they were never wrong or a little wrong. They were almost entirely wrong. And their present denials and the record substantiate that. The next question then really becomes, why did they do all this? And why were they listened to? What is it about America and so many Americans that wanted for the worst, believed and was so ready to believe nonsense? What was it about America that wanted to marginalize the sober and the commonsensical? That, it seems to me, is the question of our time and our failure to answer it rightly will represent our ongoing spiral of failure as a country. It will constitute the epitaph of the West. I'm Seth Leibson, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Be right back. Yeah, we, uh, we lost a big one with Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, I think we lost a big one. And um, just something very sad about it, um, about the passing of certain musicians that kind of defined period of America, period of your life, if you're of a certain age. Interesting with him, Gordon, he was, I think, 84. He, um, he reached a lot of different generations. Uh, I remember, you know, my parents liked him. Uh, my older sisters liked him. I liked him. And it may have kind of fallen out of favor a little bit below my age. Maybe people in their 40s don't know his music as well. But someone like that dies, a little bit of you dies, or a little bit of me dies. I feel that way. And these um, people who were so impactful on writing the um, the music, uh, writing the in a way what Carol King calls the tapestry of our culture and our cult- cultural lives. That Carefree Highway song, the, the lyrics are so... So pregnant, um, written of course, on the Carefree Highway here in Arizona, about his girlfriend and I interviewed him once with Bill Bennett, Scott Johnson mentions it in the Powerline blog today, but we had the opportunity to interview him once several- some years back, two thousand and six, I think it was. We asked him a little bit about that, the Carefree Highway song we asked him about if you could read my mind, which was the impetus for the interview bill was it 's a funny story, Bill Bennett was for some reason that song came up on the show and Bill was saying that um, it's a beautiful song but the lyrics make no sense or they're hard to decipher in any event. And he said, uh, someone in the audience happened to be in Gordon Lightfoot's band. I think it was his drummer. And he called us and he said, well, would you like to interview Gordon and you can ask him about those lyrics? Well, of course. And we did. And I can't find the recording. It's the way these things, these audio platforms change over the years you kind of lose this stuff unfortunately but i remember his explanation was was not that very helpful but it was a delight to be able to have him and uh sad to uh see his passing here uh today just something about the culture died off here with him canadian uh canadian musicians we've had a few that have that have that have done all right here haven't we uh, who else we got Canadian? We got Shania Twain, uh, Maynard Ferguson, Gordon Lightfoot. Who am I missing? Robert Goulet. Huh? Robert Goulet. <laughs> Robert Goulet. Was he Canadian too? Yeah. God. <laughs> God bless him. I'm sure I'm missing a big one with a big rock and roll band. Rush, of course. Nicely added, Bill Rush. Yeah. And maybe Bare Naked Ladies? Possibly. Anyway, uh, Hope uh, the Lightfoot family rests in peace, and uh, those of you that, um, that are uh, mourning his passing while well, the music lives on, um, and um, I suppose the legend never really dies, but um, still something kind of lacrimal about it all. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to The Seth Leedson Show. I'm not sure if that's the music of John Dombrowski's (laughs) youth or David Dahl's adulthood. I'm just not sure which, but somehow it's the same. 1977-ish has kind of merged between my producer and the great John Dombrowski, who is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his... Website. He also has his own show here every Saturday morning at 7, The Word on
2: Wealth. John, how are you, sir? Good. You know, I just had visions of yeah. uh, John Travolta strut- strutting down the street with that song.
1: Well, if you were in and studio, I- <laughs> you wouldn't need the visions. I'm looking at it right now. David Dahl, he's got—what What do you call that kind of jacket, David? It's uh, He's got the spread collar. He's got a oh 1976 political pin on and something like a leisure suit.
2: I actually had hair
1: back then. Uh, well, <laughs> John, yes. uh, we actually had a strong and unnervous-making economy, not then, but a little later. Where are we today? How how are things looking? What's with this? Well, uh, you know, we talked PAC yesterday. Yeah. yeah. We
2: talked yesterday about um, the banks, and we mm-hmm. talked about uh, J.P. Morgan Chase yep. coming in and taking over First Republic, and of course— uh, you know, the words were that it uh, seems like the banking industry, the worst is over. Yeah. But boy, today we had PacWest. <laughs> yeah, right. And Western Alliance too, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Falling nearly 28%. Yeah. Uh, this is the fourth straight negative session for the uh, bank. And uh, boy, it sure doesn't look good from their peak, you know, quite some, just, uh, just early in, uh, you know, last month yeah. at a much higher value. Now they're in the in the 5 $6 range. This doesn't bode well. Um, and uh, we're hoping that uh, maybe it doesn't lead to another, you know, failure. But it's it certainly doesn't look good for the banking industry that there is still some fallout to occur.
1: Yeah, I gather that's right. Jamie Dimon said this part of the crisis is over yesterday. Right. Maybe yeah. emphasis on the word this, right. that one bank. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe.
2: Well, I think he meant moreover that the the worst is over. Uh, and maybe this isn't considered the worst. It's yeah. not as big a bank, but it's still. It's you know, an any aftershock. Bank, any bank that fails is going to be, uh, yeah. you know, it's an issue. And yeah. now you've got the Fed, of course, meeting and uh, whether or not they're going to be raising their rates, as we talked about yesterday. So all of this is, uh, you know, coming to some type of a, I think, a culmination of of uh, all of these, you know, variables. And it's uh, leading to an interesting time, as we said yesterday as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know what I kind of found interesting? And I know you don't like to do individual companies, but I I, I just still find it fascinating. I see Ford came in with some interesting earnings reports here in the first quarter, but boosted by their traditional stock of what they make, not their electric vehicles, which were huge loss leaders, it looks like, for them. They lost a lot of money on electrics, it looks like.
2: You know, uh, prices of electric vehicles have been coming down quite a bit, Mm -hmm. and there are still some challenges about supply chain. uh, And also the thought about how we're going to, you know, continue to uh, to recharge all these vehicles. Uh, So there are some issues, and there isn't a big buy-in, 100% of everybody out there in this uh, country to buy electric vehicles. So uh, it's going to take some time. But you're right. Ford did, did come out with some great numbers. Uh, They beat expectations and forward guidance is going to be, you know, higher than expected. So uh, this is this is a good report. And this is, again, going back to even though the Fed's trying to slow this economy down, we're finding that corporations are finding a way still to generate a profit for their shareholders, uh, which is encouraging, although we are seeing. Uh, jobs again becoming a little bit of a challenge, and that is all part of the plan for the Fed raising rates. So, all of these things uh, are not going in the right direction for what the Fed wants. Right. Uh, but there are some key indications that what the Fed's doing is certainly having an effect on the economy, such as bank failures, as we're seeing now, and uh, job openings and uh, jobs. So. Uh I, I tell you, Seth, it is an interesting time right now. And I know you know people out there who have money invested, uh, they're concerned about these things, and as they should be. Uh, again, if you have a long-term outlook for your investments, uh, there could be some real opportunity out there for you long-term. And I encourage you, if you're working with an advisor, to continue communicating with them. And if you're not, hey, pick up the phone and give me a call. Happy to... To sit down and talk with you about that,
1: well, you are the best, and one of the things I love about what you do is how you kind of navigate the, the the culture as well and the culture of where the economy is going i I'll, I'll lay a marker down john you yep. don 't have to agree, you may disagree uh, even um, but I, I I try and pick up on cultural cues here and there, and if this indication from Ford that people want the traditional stuff and not the electric. Um, is somehow also wedded to what people were voting for with their wallets when it came to Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. Maybe the tale of the year will be the role of the consumer in pushing back against some of this stuff. Maybe, maybe, maybe. We'll Uh, see. I mean, Anheuser-Busch lost more than a quarter. Yeah,
2: $5 billion or something in value, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's worth watching. We'll pay attention
1: to it. You bet.
2: All right, grandcanyonplanning.com is our website. Securities and advisory services offer the Creative One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and SIPC and an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Well done,
1: sir. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. How do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy? Banks failing. More of them. Stock market volatility. More of it. And a possible recession coming. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the Fed or the stock market? An investment in a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal. if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. It's offered up by Y-Refi. Y-Refi is based here locally, and I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road and the 101, I have. I can tell you you will not get a sales pitch. No one's gonna ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team at Y ReFi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. A due diligence approved firm. Y ReFi is offering up to a ten point two five percent rate of return. That's right, ten and a quarter percent fixed rate of return. Check him out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then dot com, or call them at 888-Y-REFI-34. 888-Y-REFI-34. Mike is in Maricopa. Hello, Mike.
3: Yes, good afternoon, Seth. Uh, you were running, when you were talking about Gordon Lightfoot, you were running down some Canadians.
1: I, I didn't um, even scratch the surface, right?
3: Yeah, I was going to say Neil Young. Neil Young,
1: Joni Mitchell, it, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yep.
3: Oh, and then there's that other one that Neil Young wrote. He wrote that song, The Needle and the Damage Done. I think they've sent that out for COVID-19. Oh, Right.
0: Right. Yes.
3: There we go. Okay. So anyway, realistically, we were talking yesterday about this shooting by the illegal in Texas. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions, observations I have is why is this concentrating on the FBI? I notice that their image has been tarnished, and they keep trying to polish their badge. But every time we turn around, and it, it appears to me that they're more along the lines of custodians. They're, you know, sent to clean up the uh, the mess on the aisle five. You know, got I do. North
1: I know. But they, they've got all these. They've got dogs. They've got um, they've got DEA. They've got U.S. Marshals. They've got drones. I mean, this is an all out. This is this is they've got like 250 law enfor- federal law enforcement officials going after this guy right now.
3: Yep. Border Patrol, ATF, yep. yep. Sheriff yep. Department. Everything. By the way, I looked you know, up this
1: guy's name, just uh, the guy they're going after, Francisco Oropeza. And I you know what turned up? a 2010 story about his arrest in Idaho for, of course, drug trafficking. I mean, the, the number of times we have had this guy in our custody, now five people are dead.
3: Yeah, and also I heard that the last time he crossed the bro- border, he brought his firearms with him. Yeah. Now, as I heard on this one news story a couple of days ago, that he was shooting a pistol yep. in his front That's yard. That's right.
1: That's what started and, all this. Yeah.
3: And then he went back into the house and got the rifle. Right. So uh, I'm wondering if uh, and well, if and,
1: he and he was drunk supposedly as well, probably high yeah, but he, also uh, drunk. Yeah. Yeah,
3: uh, one goes in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but if the pistols and rifles that he brought from Mexico that those aren't you can't own those in Mexico. No, you can't. No. And so that leads my next question, being that there were about 12,000 firearms involved in Fast and Furious. Yeah. You know, if, if the ATF is there and they said they recovered the firearm, they would have known within five minutes I of would think. where that yeah. was bought, sold, traded, anything. Has there been any mention that no. he has been a cartel member or a gang member or anything? A yeah, like
1: gang that? member from his 2010 arrest, from what I saw. He was part of a criminal gang then, whether he still is... There was i don't know as of now i do find it interesting and i'm grateful you called because its story seems to have already disappeared yep they're working on it. i mean I you, you have to search this. online to get news about it. this is no longer a big deal just nope. isn't nashville's long gone
3: yes absolutely yeah and that was there was also that one about that uh, Guy that worked for the National Guard yep. and for the co- corrections yep. here in Chandler, Arizona, yep. that got busted with that 23 pounds of mess. Yeah. And has is there, is there been anything said about a, a criminal record in Mexico of any of that? You know, part?
1: I don't know. I didn't see it. If there was, I didn't see it. There might have been. Okay. I just didn't see it. Yeah.
3: Yep. And this kind of reminds me all the way back. My, to, my guess is know, if Mexico
1: held him, my guess, and it's only a guess, if Mexico did have him. They'd still have them. That'd be my guess. Sad day. Sad yeah. day.
3: Yeah. Anyway, yeah. But, yeah, it kind of reminds me all the way back from when we first started conversations about the border back in March of 21, that this is not a question of if or when. It's more of a statement of about here and now.
1: Uh, and, absolutely. Know, they- and and you saw what the White House was saying yesterday. Did you see it? Did you see what Karen Jean-Pierre said yesterday? The border crisis is 90 percent solved. She said that yesterday. Did you get that?
0: He has tools that he's used to, to make sure that we do this. We actually deal with the immigration system in a humane way, uh, and in a in a way that is uh, uh, that actually deals with what we're seeing at the border. And that's why you've seen the parolee program be so successful. Uh, it has it has um, it has a uh, uh, when it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than ninety percent.
1: Whoa. Whoa! Did you know that, Mike? Did you know that oh, illegal illegal migration came down more than ninety percent under Joe Biden? That
3: of the the knowns or the unknowns, it's
1: ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so she was confronted on that today by Peter Ducey. He asked her if she could substantiate that number because what we've been tracking and what we've been noticing is, well, there were 136,000 more encounters this very fiscal year than the year before. That's not coming down 90%, is it? So she said, she kind of wrapped herself up in a tongue twister and said, well, she was just talking about the parole program, which dealt with five countries. So they created a program to deal with, you know, the Cubans and the Haitians, And uh, I'm trying to remember who else, maybe Hondurans as well. And so they created this special parole program. And within that small program of, I think it dealt with 30,000 people that they created, they reduced it from its creation 90%. I mean, they're just lying to us. They're just lying to us. I don't know what we would do without Peter Ducey asking her these questions. 90%.
3: We have to ask those questions too, Seth. We can't let them give up on it. Maybe sometimes we'll stiffen some of these people's backbones by asking these questions and somebody else will come along and say, well, where did those firearms come from? What was the serial number?
1: Yeah, maybe. Hey, here's the Washington Post headline from last year, from 2018, May of 2018, when Donald Trump was president. You want the headline? The U.S. lost track of 1,475 immigrant children. Here's why people are outraged now. And then this big story of tremendous inhumanity under Donald Trump for losing track of about 1,400. Let's, be, let's give them the benefit, the 1,500 immigrant children, okay? Under President Biden, federal government has lost track of 85,000 children who crossed the border unaccompanied by their parents. 1,500 was a major crisis when it was Donald Trump. Eighty-five thousand under Joe Biden. Nary a comment or editorial. That's how it works around here. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Yeah, you're not going to see that story very off, uh, very in very many places, if any, other than at Issues and in Insights. Thank you for them. Issues and Insights. Yeah. Washington Post. U.S. lost track of fourteen hundred and seventy five immigrant children last year. Here's why people are outraged. That was twenty eighteen headline. Washington Post. The federal government has lost track of eighty five thousand children under President Biden's allegedly more humane border security policies. These are children who crossed the border unaccompanied by their parents, many of whom ended up in the hands of track traffickers, not family or friends. The scale is far bigger today because the number of children crossing the border has exploded under Biden. Since he took office, border agents have encountered more than 354,000 unaccompanied minors. In the past six months, the number exceeds 71,000, which is twice what it was in all of 2020. The response from the press crickets. The Washington Post isn't outraged at all. In fact, the only mention of the 85,000 figures so far has been in a commentary by Brain Dead columnist Greg Sargent, who used it as an excuse to attack Republicans for not getting serious about the border. Yeah, the Republicans are the ones not serious about the border. It gets worse. Congress last week heard from a whistleblower who told lawmakers that not only has the Biden administration lost contact with these unaccompanied border crossing children, hasn't been properly vetting the sponsors with whom the federal government places them after they get here. Tara Lee Rodas told lawmakers at a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing that she'd volunteered to help the Biden administration deal with the flood of illegals, but then saw firsthand what she described as a sophisticated network of child migrant smuggling. Quote, some sponsors are criminals and traffickers and members of transnational criminal organizations. Some sponsors view children as commodities and assets to be used for earning income. This is why we are witnessing an explosion of labor trafficking. It can only be argued that the U.S. government has become the middleman in a large-scale, multi-billion-dollar child trafficking operation run by bad actors seeking to profit off the lives of children. And then there's the explosive New York Times article that says the Biden administration has known all along that it unleashed a human trafficking nightmare, but has done little about it. It's done the opposite, in fact. The Times tells the story of one Linda Brandmiller, who was supposed to vet sponsors, but she was fired, after sending urgent warnings to her supervisors about possible child traffickers posing as sponsors. Yeah, if you tell the truth, you get fired, if the truth just won't do. It's a human tragedy, ongoing and daily, and the administration lies to us about it, and the media only cared about it when it was a tenth of the scale under the previous president because he had an R behind his name. The children aren't R's and D's. And really, you know what? On this issue, neither should the rest of the country be. We'll be right back. Three-star general
0: Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.